Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for August has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Mike Rogers, an elementary school principal in St. Paul, Minnesota. How's it going, Mike? It's going great. How are you? I am... Uh, I, I'm a little broken up about Robin Williams, but aside from that, it, things are really good. Great. And uh, you are in the same state that I am, being Minnesota. Yeah, I was wondering if I'm the first uh, guest to be from the same state as you are. No, I had uh, Jeff Severns Gunsel on. He's, uh, he's he lives in in the Twin Cities as well. Okay. Uh, so I'm not I'm not. A, well, also, I had uh, yeah, I've had a few people from the state so you're not the first but I, I would say it's a rarity out of 109 episodes i think i've had three minnesotans on i'm proud to be one of them um so did you do you live in minnesota on purpose i do uh, yeah I, I grew up here and uh i left for a while uh i moved north to go to college in fargo north dakota for a few years uh and then i lived in new york city for a while but then i came back i guess i just kind of missed the midwest isn't isn't fargo midwest yeah i'd say fargo's midwest but it's a little bit uh windier there a little too windy for me i guess <laughs> okay okay um so uh how did you get to the position of principal well i was a teacher for a number of years uh, i taught my first teaching position after leaving uh, student teaching in Fargo was in New York City. Uh, I taught in the Bronx at an all-boys high school, which was quite an experience. I stayed there for four years uh, in New York and then came back here to uh, the Twin Cities, to St. Paul, and uh, taught at a middle school for four years. And then after that, I moved on to become a principal. And do you enjoy the position of principal versus teacher? Yes, I do. I would say that uh, probably there isn't a day that goes by where I don't miss teaching. Uh, I, I do miss it quite a bit. Uh, sometimes when when teachers are absent, I'll I'll you know go in there for a day and kind of get back into the swing of things if I know the uh, the topic. But uh, yeah, I, I like being a, a principal. It gives me a chance to have a a bigger impact, obviously, and set the direction for an entire school as opposed to just a single classroom. So sure. it's, uh, it's, it's a great job. It's, it's wonderful. It's uh, a lot of kind of long-term planning and uh, things like that, which I really enjoy. To me, that implies uh, a passion for education. Um, I think, I mean, every teacher should have a passion for education, but to be, to want to be in a position where you direct an entire, you know, school-wide curriculum, I think that implies a real a drive do you feel like like you have that drive i certainly hope so <laughs> i i feel like i do yeah uh, absolutely i think uh it's every day is different that's another thing that i love about it but um trying to keep you know things on track and uh you know having relationships with not just the students but even more with uh families than i did as a teacher um involvement with a wider community uh, there's a lot of, of other opportunities that I have now as a principal that I didn't have as a teacher, which I really enjoy. So you told me that you use uh, uh, 
iOS especially, but you use technology in uh, in your day to day activities. What kind of stuff do you do that uh, that is particular to being a principal? Well, I would say that probably the biggest challenge that I face, and I would imagine a lot of other principals face, is that there is a lot of information that is coming at us. Um, and this is true for teachers as well, or probably any professional. But I think as a principal, there's all these different things, initiatives and projects that uh, a principal has to kind of stay on top of. And there's a lot of information that's coming in. You know, the phone's ringing, there's emails, there's, you know, the teacher that stops me in the hallway and, and has something they want to talk to me about. There's uh, things with students. And there's just so many things to keep a handle on. And kind of the way that I use, uh, you know, my phone, my iPhone or my iPad is to just try and write all these things down. I'm a heavy user of drafts. Um, I rely on that. It becomes kind of my notepad, uh, you know, for the whole day. So anytime I'm in the hallway and somebody comes up to me, uh, you know, a teacher, you know, there's a, there's a light bulb out in their classroom, you know, because I'm, I'm the principal of a small school that becomes, you know, somewhat my responsibility to, to get them a new light bulb. Not that I'm installing it myself, but, uh, you know, it's stuff that still needs to get taken care of. So, I find it really helpful just to, you know, I'll just take out my phone, I'll open up drafts, I'll write something down real quick. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's handy for scheduling meetings. Um, it just, it, it makes things really a lot, I wouldn't say easier, but it, it helps me feel like I'm being a little bit more efficient. Uh, so I, I've kind of been trying to spread the word a little bit about um, iOS and iPhones and iPads and how principals can use them to their advantage. I think a lot of people... Uh, at least in my field, are still using their smartphone to make phone calls, and and it's pretty limited. <laughs> and I think that you know there's so much more that you can do to help you be more effective in the work that you're doing. So um, that's really something that I have tried to work on in the past year or two. Do you have any favorite drafts tricks? Yeah, actually, one of the things I do is I go into classrooms and I. Um, I just pop in, I call them classroom walkthroughs. And this is a pretty standard thing that a lot of principals do, but I'll try to pop in and see what's going on. I'll just stay for like three to five minutes um, unannounced. And what I'll do is I'll jot down notes uh, with drafts. And then I have this action that I created, which basically takes all my notes. Um, it takes the the top line of the note is the teacher's first initial and last name, which also happens to be the start of their email. So I jot that down, then I jot down the notes, then I tap the action, and it basically takes the notes and it puts them in a spreadsheet for me um, so that I can go back and, and see when I was in which classroom and what I observed. But then it also uh, takes the notes and it sends them directly to the teacher so that the teacher can see what I'm seeing uh, and, and what I observed. And, you know, sometimes I'll add a little thing in there, you know, maybe we should sit down and talk about this, but usually it's just, you know, awesome job. This looks like a great lesson. You know, the kids were, um, they were involved, they were engaged. And, uh, then the teacher knows what I kind of recorded officially from the visit. And it makes it a little bit less threatening for the teacher, sure, yeah. uh, which I think is good. And I, you know, when I first started doing it, um, I guess it was two years ago. Uh, I think it took the teachers a little bit of time to kind of get used to it. And the kids too, because the kids want to say hi to me when I walk in the classroom. So I kind of had to <laughs> teach, you know, teach them not to do that because I really wanted to just kind of walk to the back of the room and just you know, observe kind of quietly. But that's one thing that I do uh, to 
and it just helps for recording things. You know, I don't have to walk around with a notepad and then transcribe it later or sure. anything like that. It's just very simple. How do you get notes from drafts into a spreadsheet? Um, I use Google Drive, uh, and oh. you can you can link up drafts with Google Drive and uh, just append to a spreadsheet, similarly to how you can append to a a Dropbox text file, for example. It's just the same sort of action. I actually did not know you could do that. Yeah, it's 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 pretty great. Um, you can use it for a lot of different things, uh, but that's that's how I use it. I've made one spreadsheet in the last five years. <laughs> well, that's that's probably good that you don't have to make more than that, I guess. <laughs> it's the one that runs the iText editor spreadsheet. Well, that's an important one, so that you want to keep chart, that one going. That yeah, old don't, chart comes from a, a Google Drive spreadsheet. That's the only one I know how to make. <laughs> well, the, the website that it produces is is great, so hey, make thanks. sure you keep that spreadsheet going. <laughs> I actually just added it to it today. I'm thinking one of the apps that I added today will probably be a top pick this week, so we'll get to that later, but... Um, at my high school and my middle school, and I don't remember elementary school very well, but there was always a faction and in high school, it was a large faction of teachers that did not agree with the principal. I know you, you, you have a small school and you probably don't deal with that as much, but do you have, have you experienced, uh, either as a teacher or as an administrator, this kind of, uh, the war between administration and Teachers, or is that unusual for me? That's a good question. Um, I would say that when I was a teacher, I always had really great principals. Um, I don't ever feel like when I was a teacher that there was a combative relationship. I, certainly, there were maybe parts of the other people on the faculty that uh, did not have a great relationship with the principal. But in my experience, I've always been really fortunate. I've I've never really had a boss, I guess, that I haven't gotten along well with. And so it's, you know, everything that's been fine. As a principal, um, I, you know, the, the staff at my school is quite small. We're a pre-K through eighth grade school, but uh, it's still, it's a fairly small school. You know, we have about 215 students. So um, in terms of full-time faculty that I see every day, there, there isn't a huge number of them. And I like to think that we all get along pretty well. <laughs> I, uh, and I'm not just saying that. I, I really try to keep an open door. And I, I think after several years of being in this role at the same school, the teachers know that, that I'm going to listen to their concerns if they have them. And I'm always going to back up a decision that I make. And uh, you know, maybe they don't know the rationale behind the decision that's made if they disagree with it. But I always really am very purposeful about making decisions and, and bringing it back to the students, you know, making a, a decision based on why this is best for the kids, because that's why we do this. And ultimately, if, if there is a, uh, a dissenting teacher, uh, you know, once I explain the rationale behind the decision and they see why what I've done is best for kids, then there's usually not an issue. So I guess I've been pretty fortunate. Um, well, that's encouraging in that too. I think uh, I think mo- I small town politics played a lot in the the kind of factions that I saw created among teachers and administration, and I think that outside of the small town atmosphere, it probably would have been less of a high pressure situation. There's something very um, <laughs> combative about small town politics. People get very impassioned and unreasonable sometimes 
I guess when everybody knows each other, it, yeah. it, uh, it can be a little difficult. Yeah, because you get personal conflicts mixed in with, you know, your own your own passions and and thoughts on direction. And but no, I'm I'm encouraged to hear that that you've uh, you've had such a, a friction free career so far. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been it's been going pretty well. Not completely friction friction well, uh, sure. free, but it's been going pretty well. <laughs> what is? Um, you were a history teacher. Was that when you were in the Bronx? Yeah, I was a history teacher in the Bronx at a, a high school. Yeah. What range of history did you teach? Uh, I taught uh, everything from ninth and tenth grade um, world cultures uh, up to eleventh grade U.S. history. That was a few years ago now, so I'm trying to recall uh, what it was, but it was ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade. All right. Um, well, I, I was more curious about what eras of history you covered. Oh, sure. But, but yeah. I think I, I can derive that from your answer. Um, U.S. history only goes back so far. Right. Um, it, my favorite my favorite teacher in high school, what, well, my favorite teacher was an English lit teacher, but second favorite, easily my history teacher, uh, U.S. history. And he was, he was quite the... Um, rebel uh i i don't i don't know how to phrase it because he wasn't like uh, he wasn't anti-authoritarian or uh, anti-authoritarian he was just he wanted to teach reality and he was very much the uh the instigator in a lot of uh a lot of problems with the administration because they didn't want him teaching things the way he taught them did you ever run into like this need to teach history from a certain angle and perspective or did you always feel free to teach it the way that you felt it should be taught? I would say I always felt very free to, to teach it the way that I felt it should be taught. Um, there's different ways of approaching history and you know, it's, it's very common for a textbook to focus on maybe not so much now, but at least, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, it's, it was very common for textbooks to focus on the role of, you know, white males and, you know, especially in U.S. Right. history. And I really tried to bring a diverse uh, perspective. Um, I did a lot of stuff as a, as a teacher where I would ask the students to uh, show me what they thought it would be like for maybe the people in history that weren't the white males that were running society uh, so the, the kids might have to write from the perspective of, you know, a, a civil war soldier, or they'd have to write a story about what it might be like to be a runaway slave uh, or something like that. And I found that that was a really good way to get the students to, you know, put themselves in another person's shoes, right? not to get, not to get too cliche about it, but, and that's, that's a lot of what I tried to do. And then the other way that I kind of look at teaching history is I would always, try to tell my students a, a story every day, um, recognizing that the U.S. history in particular, obviously, is a whole, you know, millions of stories all connected together. But I, I really see it a lot as storytelling. And there's so many interesting things that happened in U.S. history that make really great stories uh, that I would almost always get the kids to, to hook into what I was trying to get them to to learn about. And, and that's kind of how I approached it. And so the stories would range, you know, all over the map, but, um, I'd, I'd say I was, I could teach it the way that I wanted to, thankfully. I love both of those things. Like to me, world peace will only ever be 
attainable when people are able to put themselves in the opposing forces shoes. Mm-hmm. It's uh did you ever read the war prayer by um uh Clemens um Mark Twain? No, I haven't. It's this amazing story where it's this church and the pastor is praying for victory in war. Uh praying that their young heroes slaughter the enemy and this angel walks in and he comes up to the pulpit and he says the other side of the prayer. He says, you know, that you are wishing death and destruction and and these horrible things from the other side's perspective. Mm-hmm. And he completes the other half of this war prayer. And it's a short story. It's like, I think, four or five pages long. Um, but it was, it was, to me, it was a turning point in my own perspective on, on not just war, but on history in general. Like this idea of being able to see from another person's perspective. And it really, really changes things when you have to take the time to look through someone else's eyes. And then... Uh, the also the idea of like telling history as a story like the idea of an oral tradition like history doesn't exist without the storytelling perspective you can write down a whole bunch of facts and you can create you know leviticus or deuteronomy out of it or you can actually tell stories and and create like a a living tapestry of what's come before you and yes stories can be easily biased and slanted but they can also serve to continue history in a way that's more than just record keeping. I think that's a great way to look at it. I, I totally agree with you. Wow. I just went off on like a, I just talked a lot. Maybe you should be a teacher. I actually, I think I would really enjoy that if I liked kids more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've, I've often thought like it would be fun to like go into some kind of uh, like, what do you call like adjunct professorships or whatever? Sure. Yeah. Um, some of my favorite teachers were actually just like part-time uh, professors at my art school that would, that were really good at one thing and they were working in the real world and they would come in at night and teach, you know, about what they did. And it was, I took a rock and roll history course from a guy like that. That was just insanely fun. <laughs> history doesn't yeah. have to be boring. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's been taught for a long time as, as a really boring, uh, kind of subject. I think it kind of has a bad rap. Um, you know, there's like the whole stereotype of, you know, the football, football coach teaches social studies, you right, know? Right. um, but it's really, um, it can really be a fascinating subject in my opinion. And I'm, I'm really passionate about telling stories still am, even though I'm not a teacher anymore. And I think the kids would really pick up on that. And, and when, they, when they see that their teacher is excited, they usually are, at least in middle school anyway, they're not at that point yet where they're uh, anti-teacher. <laughs> they can usually go along with you and be excited with you. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, like I was anti-teacher. I was, a, I was not a happy high schooler. But a teacher that stood out, a teacher that caught my attention, man, I was... I would be a great student for a teacher that was unconventional, that would really go out of their way to bring things to life for me. And mm-hmm. I, I, I have the utmost respect for teachers that stand out like that. So I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, but then I want to talk to you about trains. Sounds good. 
All right. So this week's episode is brought to you by Jamf, J-A-M-F Software. Um, you might have already noticed that a lot of businesses, schools, and organizations are using iPhones, iPads, and Macs to run things a little more smoothly. However, in order for everything to work efficiently, you need tools for the IT staff so that they can set up, configure, manage, and secure the influx of Apple devices. And that's where Jamf Software comes in. Since 2002, Jamp Software has been the only company focused on managing Apple for IT. They have created some really helpful tools like the Casper Suite to keep device management easy and efficient. Casper Suite gives IT professionals a power, powerful toolkit for setup, configuration, and security while users still get to enjoy the native Apple user experience. Unlike other device management software, Casper Suite is a flexible, reliable, and secure solution. It even offers self-service, an application within Casper Suite designed to help end users install their own software on demand so you can spend less time worrying about the little things. If you own or work for a company that primarily uses Apple devices, you should give Casper Suite a shot. To request a free trial or find out more, visit jamfsoftware.com slash systematic 5 by 5 That's J-A-M-F software.com, and then all one word, systematic number five by number five thanks to jamp for uh for bringing this episode to life this week so mike you uh you actually have a book out on riding trains i do what's the title of the book it's called uh riding around america all right and it's it's kind of a journal yeah it 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 absolutely is a journal i uh I took this trip around the country uh, by train, uh, literally all the way around, uh, starting in New York and going down to New Orleans and uh, Tucson, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, Minnesota, Chicago, and then to New York. So I literally went all the way around. And this was in 2004, so it was 10 years ago uh, before I was married and had kids and had my summers totally free. And uh, I, I kept a journal along the way. And actually, at the time, I published it uh, as a blog uh, online. That, that site is no longer around. Uh, but I was publishing from the train with a Dell laptop and one of those Wi-Fi cards that you would slot into the, <laughs> to the nice. uh, laptop. And uh, so I was actually publishing on the way. So it, it really is a journal. It was all entirely written, except for a few minor edits. It was entirely written on the trip 10 years ago. And you and you took a camera with you, right? So it's uh, the book is kind of the the best photos of the trip. I think I had hundreds of pictures that I took on the trip. I think there's maybe like a hundred in the book. Nice. And uh, what uh, what draws you to trains in general? I think actually the I have a, a person that I owe this to, which is my dad. He uh, back in the seventies was a photojournalism. Uh, major in college at the U of M and uh, he was really into trains. And so as a kid, uh, when he was still really into photography, you know, I'd kind of be with him as a kid when he would be out taking pictures of trains and stuff. And uh, it's just kind of always something that stayed with me. Uh, living in New York was, was wonderful because I got to ride a train twice a day to and from work, which was wonderful. And uh, I think that's kind of probably where it started, but also, you know, the opportunity that we have, you know, in this country to ride this train system, which really gets bashed a lot, but, you know, cause it's never on time basically. Uh, but is, it's just such a great way to travel. Well, and that is, that is the, 
biggest complaint, and I think a legitimate one, is that you can you can you have to plan an extra day if you want to take a tr- a, a, a decent length trip on a train because you're looking at you know fourteen to twenty hour delays. Yep. How how do you do you see riding trains as more of a leisure time activity? Yeah, I think so. I think you know without without any high speed rail, uh, you know, in this country, it's you know maybe on the East Coast, you know, where you can go a little bit more quickly, you know, between DC and New York and Philadelphia or or wherever. But I think for the most part, the vast majority of the train system in America is definitely for leisure. It's a great way to travel because you know you actually get to see the the, the landscape that you're riding through, and I think as uh, my interest in it also comes from when I was a kid going on this summer you know car trip with my parents and my brother, and just being able to see everything that we were you know driving through all the different types of landscapes and everything and and the train is really conducive to that it's very you know and and the people on the train are really interesting also uh you know, there's people from all different walks of life. You know, some of the people are, are maybe they, they can't afford a, a plane ticket or at least, you know, when I was taking this big trip back in 2004, that was the case. Um, but then there's also people that are, are doing it. They have the sleeper car, you know, and they're right. doing it for as part of the journey. Uh, you know, so in my opinion that, that I kind of fall into the latter camp where, Although I never got a sleeper car, I always just stayed right in the seat where I was and just leaned it back as far as I could, uh, which is not always the most comfortable thing. But it was financially that was <laughs> kind of the way it had to be for me. But uh, yeah, it, it's I think it's a fantastic way to travel. I would love to do it more. Uh, you know, I I hope to take my my kids on a train trip sometime. I think that would just be a wonderful way to travel. I think that interesting is a term that could be used to describe passengers on a greyhound. Yes. But but I would not I would not find them at all entertaining. I have been right. on Greyhounds. I have done that many times. Um I don't think anyone has ever romanticized a Greyhound trip the way that people do with trains. Yeah, I th- I think part of that is because on the train you can get up and you can walk around. You know, there's 10 different train cars and you're not just crammed into this little tiny space where you you can't move. I mean, there's only so much walking around you can do on a bus, but on a train you know, you can, you know, the train might be, you know, several hundred, you know, a hundred yards long maybe. And, and you can get a lot of walking in and see different types, different types of people from all over the place. And it's, it's kind of a, it doesn't feel like a limiting experience in the way that traveling on Greyhound does. It feels more <laughs> like a, a kind of a freeing actually experience traveling by train, in my opinion. Nice. Well, I'll admit, I, I, I'm drawn to the romanticism of it. I, I can't remember what Amtrak is calling them, but have you heard about these programs where they will let writers ride for free? Yes. And I, I think I actually tweeted them at some point, you know, a few months ago when that, that first kind of came out and they have not responded. But I, I said, hey, I, I wrote a book about being on the train. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you could, uh, you know, let me go on another trip. But, uh, yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. I think it's a great idea. I don't, I don't know if anything has come out of it yet. I haven't read anything where they, you know, a writer actually did this, I, uh, except I, for that original piece. I have known, I have known writers who have done it. Uh, I don't think it's been. I, I mean, Amtrak was very lax about what they required participants to to do for Amtrak. Like, you didn't have to write about Amtrak. You didn't have to write for Amtrak. You could just write. Okay. And I don't know how much 
good it has done for Amtrak other than just some word of mouth. Right. But I, th- I think it's awesome that they're doing it. I, as, as a writer myself, I, I would love to do it. And I applied. I didn't hear back from them either. But Well, does, does the train go through your, your part of yes. Minnesota? Oh, it does. Okay. We, have a, we have a train stop in Winona that um, is, if you plan a good 15-hour window, it's a pretty reliable train stop, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I, I I must have gone through there. It, it's I mean, it must go right from you know St. Paul to Chicago. It must must go right through there. I'm, yeah. I'm sure I've been through there a number of times, but who knows what time it was? Yeah, you know, right. It might have been broad daylight one day and then pitch black at night the other time. And that my parents just took a train trip, and their biggest complaint was they went through the entire like mountain range um, at night. So they didn't actually get to see what they had planned the whole trip around seeing. Um, but uh, that's neither here nor there, really. Well, it is really a shame that it's not more reliable, especially since more people are traveling on it now. Uh, the The ridership numbers have gone up quite a bit, I believe, over the past few years. And it's really unfortunate that they can't. You know, they always told us when I was on this trip and you know, 10 years ago that it was because you know, the Amtrak doesn't own the tracks. It's the, the freight right. companies that own the tracks. And so, you know, you have to put the Amtrak off on a siding while the oil train goes through. Um, and there's not a lot they can do about that, which is unfortunate because I think it could really explode if there were actual, you know, Amtrak owned tracks. Yeah, or high-speed rails. Right, exactly. Of course, high-speed rail would kind of detract from the, the romantic aspect of riding a train, I suppose. It It might, but I think... I think the United States is a big enough country that, you know, you, you can still see a lot, even if you're going, you know, 150 miles an hour. So I, I actually think it could, it could work. I think people would still probably travel on it for the same reason, but I don't know that they're necessarily going to build the high speed rail, you know, between Seattle and Fargo necessarily. Did you, know. you, did you see a uh, snow No, I did not. It's a movie about, uh, like the world basically ends, but this guy builds a train that's, that circumnavigates the world. And this train has an eternal engine in it. And the, the, the last, uh, the, the last vestige of humanity is all on this train and they're circumnavigating the globe. And it's about like this uprising from the cars in the back, you know, like fighting their way through this like kind of caste system that's set up as the trains near the engine or as the cars near the engine. And, uh, I, I would think that for anyone who, who enjoys the, the romantic aspect of trains, it would be an entertaining movie. I, I enjoyed it. It was good. It's called Snowpiercer. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna have to check that one out. Cause the world has frozen over and the train basically just constantly has to drill through <laughs> icebergs. Okay. <laughs> it's good though. It's good. Um, so would you like to talk about some top three picks? Sure. Sounds great. I will let you, uh, start with your first one. All right. Uh, my first pick is a website, uh, that I learned about when I lived in New York, um, but will be probably something that people who haven't lived in the city would probably still enjoy. It's called scouting New York. Uh, and the website is scouting And it's basically a, the blog of a film scout who works and lives in New York and works for major, you know, motion picture companies. And he 
basically writes about the different things that he finds throughout the city. So, you know, sometimes it'll be the, the boarded up theater that's been boarded up for a hundred years that, you know, he gets access to because maybe there's a motion picture company that's looking to film there and he photographs all this stuff and he really has a great eye for detail. He has a great eye for, uh, architecture and, uh, it's just a really amazing website. He's, he's a decent photographer. He's a quite good photographer actually as well. Uh, and you know, he covers things that are hidden in plain sight. You know, he, he'll cover, he'll write a whole blog post about the history of the one farmhouse that's still in Manhattan and has some great photos of it. And actually the most recent one that he did, uh, I think was about, uh, New York's sky bridges, which yeah. of course in the twin cities, we would call them skyways and we have tons of them here, but, there's only, you know, a dozen or so in New York and there are these, you know, bridges, basically pedestrian walkways that connect two buildings together. So, uh, it's really a great website. And, uh, you know, when I lived in New York, I just loved that kind of stuff, you know, going to a, you know, a theater that had just reopened, you know, after being closed for 15 years to see a concert or something like that, uh, was just one of the things that I loved about New York. And, uh, this guy really does a great job of, uh, writing about these things. Sometimes he does a little bit of research as well uh, about the, uh, the the place that he's visiting. But uh, it's just a great website. And it's, it's one of the blogs that, uh, you know, every time it pops up in my RSS feed as something new that he's written on this site, I just get the biggest kick out of it. It's always something that's really cool. And then one of the other things that he does is uh, he'll go through, a, he'll watch a movie that's set in New York City, like Ghostbusters, for example. And then he will uh, take photos of those actual locations where they shot the film. And, but he'll take the photos today, obviously. And then right. you can kind of compare, uh, you know, so he'll have the picture of the, the Ghostbusters, you know, station house where they were based. And, you know, there'll be a, something, you know, he'll show the actual scene from the movie along with the, act, the, uh, the photo of what, lo- what it looks like today. And it's just really, really neat to see you know, how they made these films and, and what is still there and what's different and the times that maybe they use the same street for two different scenes. And he totally catches all that stuff. I mean, the guy's like an expert in New York city and, and applies it to film and it's just a really great website. I I'm looking through it right now. It is, it's fascinating. The Skybridge article, like he has this historic rendering of, uh, William Robinson's R- William Robinson lays 1908 visionary city. And it has like multiple skyways between all the buildings and there's like trains going through on like second stories. And um, yeah, like the research that went into just this post is it's fascinating. I'm going to have to come back and I will subscribe to this because it would be one of the ones that would show up in my feed once in a while that I would actually fully read. Yeah. and, And he doesn't overdo it. You know that when he posts something, it's going to be a pretty well-researched thing with a significant amount of photos and, and uh, you know, maybe it's once a week, but it's always just really quality. It's good writing and I, I believe the the guy that runs the website and I, I should have looked up his name before I started talking about it, but I believe he is actually raising money to make his own film. I don't know what it's about, but um, if you visit the website, maybe you want to give him a couple bucks. I'm not sure what the movie's about, but uh, if, if he has the same attention to detail to his own film sure. as he does to others, it, it'll probably be pretty good. Yeah, it looks like his name is Nick Carr. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah, he, uh, he, he does appear to be uh, meticulous in what he does. I think he would make a great movie. Even if it was just about sky bridges. Yeah, that would make a great movie by itself. <laughs> they, they could shoot it here in, the, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
Nice. Um, why it, Why do you think we have so many more skyways than... Because winter is just as brutal in New York. Well, it, it can be just as brutal in New York as it is in Minnesota. Why wouldn't they want to walk through covered passages everywhere? I don't know. That That's a very good question. I'm, I'm just kind I, of shocked. I have some theories, but... Well, actually, I don't really have any theories, I don't think. Maybe... I mean, it could be because of the way the city was built, the way it developed. Maybe it has something to do with architecture property. Just- I mean, there there could be something where the the you know the air above the streets is owned by the city and they don't sell it. I mean, it could be anything. I I really don't know. That's a good question, though. Could be, yeah, politics. All right. Um, so my first pick is I picked this thing up for my wife, because we're starting to do a series of dog training videos and I'm recording most of them on my iPhone five and the video quality has been just great. Like it's, it's perfect, but microphone when you're dealing in a, like a room with echoes and any distance, the the mic is not ideal. So I got this zoom IQ five microphone that plugs into the lightning port on the iPhone and it gives you a directional stereo condenser mid-side microphone with full gain control in limiting. And it costs about 100 bucks, and it has done wonders for video sound. And you can, you can configure it with their own application, and then it, it will remember settings, and you can load it up in any, any app that uses the mic will then function with this extended microphone. And it's been really impressive. It even has like a headphone through jack so you can hear the audio as it's being recorded. So I'm I'm thinking of the applications for this in a school. Yeah. Uh because you know if a lot of schools have uh iPads for their students and we just purchased 50 iPads for the middle school students at my school and one of the things that we wanted to make sure that yeah, like right now I'm looking at cases, you know, what, what case are we going to put on these iPads to protect them? Because this is a, an investment of tens of thousands of dollars and that we don't want to screw it up and have them breaking all the time uh, with middle school kids using them. And one of the things that was really important is having access to the microphone because the kids are always creating things, you know, they're making movies, they're, you know, they're doing skits or, or yeah. whatever, you know, because when you, you know, you want kids to be creating things because that's when their mind is fully engaged in the content that you want them to learn. And, uh, it might be handy for us to have just one or two of these for, for, uh, using for those purposes when the, you know, the mic on the iPad maybe isn't going to quite do the job. Yeah. So yeah. That's, for, that's for any kind thing. of like uh, creative pursuit, anything you're recording multimedia, it would be a great tool. Um, have you ever seen apps like Paranote? Uh, P-A-R or P-E-A-R, like the fruit. No, I haven't it, heard of that one. It lets you record audio. It's it's designed for lectures. So you can record the audio of a lecture or, you know, any classroom activity. And then you take notes. And as you take notes, it it, it connects the notes with a timestamp in the audio. So then you can tap your note and it'll jump to what was being said at the time that you wrote that note which is perfect for people like me who cannot decipher their own notes when they're done. Sure. Because I just write down random things that stick out to me and without context, I lose them. Right. 
but this allows me to just tap that note and hear exactly you know what triggered that note i think i think it may be more applicable to higher ed but i could see uh, application for that kind of thing all over the place right it'd, it'd be handy to have you know just on you know on a device in case you needed it right yeah okay so there i i, I suggest that as a non pick okay but in fact let me link that before i forget paranoids okay um yeah so what's your second pick uh my second pick is uh an app called habit list and uh there's i did a kind of a review of all these different habit tracking apps and everything um probably about six months ago maybe almost a year ago now and uh habit list is one that i that i use you know i've used it for months and months and and basically it's it's very simple you set up uh you know the habits that you're working on that you want to get in the habits i guess of of doing and it has a lot of different uh, configuration options so you can pick if it's a habit that you want to happen on an interval like every two days or every three days or if it's something that you want to do on a uh, specific day of the week uh, if it's a you know something that repeats every weekday or only on the weekends and it's it, it can be configured pretty much any way that you need it and then basically you just open it up and uh, your list of habits for that particular day is there uh, and you check them off as you do them and it, it's very simple uh, but it is you know one of the things that it got me to do, which I'm kind of embarrassed about, is it got me to floss regularly. <laughs> and uh, it's, I just, it's just a great app, and, and I use it every day, and uh, it really helps me stay on track with health. And uh, you know, I use it to make sure that I'm exercising every day to give me that little prod uh, you know, to do that. And then it will track your streak of, of how long you've done it, uh, which is also kind of a victory thing, you know, and then you can go back and look at a month and see, well, how many days in a row did I exercise? You know, I wanted to do it every day of the week. You know, I have a streak of 15 going and, you know, it just kind of helps you to give that, give you that little extra boost to keep going with whatever you're trying to do. It has no social features at all, which I like (laughs) because I don't, you know, now that I've mentioned the flossing thing, I guess it's out there, but I didn't, at the time I didn't necessarily want people to know that this is a habit I was working on. I don't, really need other people to keep me accountable because I, I you know I'm, I'm usually kind of hard on myself and, and it's important to me to you know not let myself down so that was enough so it doesn't have any social features and but, the next thing you know your dentist is like emailing you saying I noticed you didn't floss for two days in a row now. Yeah, right yeah that that's another thing you know you don't have to worry about big brother <laughs> looking over your shoulder and checking out your teeth big dentist um yeah, yeah no I think it, it fits well with the idea of quantified self which most people are finding the idea like like Fitbit, you know, like the idea, the social features aside, the idea that you can look and see your progress and how well you did encourages you to do better moving forward. Even right. my automatic is making me a better driver because as mad as I get at it for beeping every time I accelerate too quickly. I do at the end of the week when it sends my sends me my report that said you scored 45% this week. <laughs> See if you can do better next week. I actually do feel this uh inkling of a desire to make my car live longer and be a better driver. Mm-hmm. Uh just because I have the stats to show how many times I hit my brake pedal too hard and 
Um, yeah, I think I think that kind of thing works for people. I think it works for me. Yeah, it definitely works for me. I mean, before I had this, you know, it was you know I would try doing these things to kind of get going on a habit, but this has really made pretty much everything stick. You know, I I also credit this app with getting me to journal, uh, which I did not do. Well, probably since the train trip back in 2004 that I wrote the book about. But uh, since then, I hadn't done a lot of journaling. And now I just have this thing that, you know, on with the Habit List app, it just pops up every, I think I have it set for three days uh, to remind me to journal. And uh, I do. And I have two little kids. So I just write, jot down little quotes or, or funny things that they did or, you know, whatever happened to me at, at school that day or just random things. And, uh, you know, just having that to look back on, I think will be really nice. And, yeah. and habit list helps me kind of remember to do that. What app do you journal in? Day one. Do you? And you don't use day one's reminders? No, I, I don't. I, I, th- I try to not use a lot of reminders and notifications. Uh, totally understandable. So I, I don't have a lot popping up on my phone. Actually, nothing pops up except for text messages. Everything else is in the notification center. Yep. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I have the habit of using habit list, I guess. So, you know, that does more for me than a, than a reminder would. Sure. Yeah. See, I spend most of my time at a desk. And so I always have like a full on Mac in front of me. And I found that the reminders from day one, because I can just write right in that reminders window when it pops up, actually it, it's effective. I didn't use it for the first like year that I had day one because I thought they were annoying. But uh, but I'm in much the same boat where I've realized that just taking those quick notes is not only helpful in the short term, it's really it's fun to look back at the last year and see what happened, what I did. Right. And and I would say that's that's where the power of tags comes in as well. Yeah. Just, you know, not to go too far off the track here, but, you know, I use tags with day one to kind of just give me a sense of what it was that I was writing about on that particular day. One of my favorite tags to go back to is the uh, the tag quote because that's funny things that my kids said. <laughs> and and I'll, you know, I'll occasionally go back through there and read all the entries that are tagged quote and there's it's just hilarious. I mean, that's some really funny stuff that I can go back to and, you know, my wife and I all laugh about it. You know, I have a two a 2-year-old and a 3-year-old. So, there's a lot of funny stuff that gets said and just being able to just take out my phone real quick and write it down and put the phone away, you know, it's I I think it's really neat to be able to go back to that. And I'm sure you'll have that loaded up when your kids bring home their first date. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um okay, so my second pick, I'm going to go with the Lazify app for Spotify. Um do you use Spotify at all? Uh, I, I have it. I use it occasionally, um, uh, but not, not heavily. Spotify is really the only way I listen to music anymore. So this works well for me. It's, uh, it's an app that you drag a single song to. You just give it any song and it will build you a playlist up to eight hours or as short as you want, uh, of related songs using the last FM API. And it does a really good job. And it has made me so many great playlists that it's, it's exactly what it says. It's, it's for lazy people. If you think this is the mood I'm in, this song represents that mood, it will create a playlist that fits that mood. Um, and I, I, I've been really enjoying it. Is it uh, is for the Mac then? 
It's for it's for Spotify. Like you install it within Spotify. Oh, I see. Okay. In the app section. So yeah, like you can while you're listening to a song, you can just drag it into the sidebar and get a whole playlist from whatever song you actually were currently listening to. So it's like genius, but it's not yeah. limited to your own library. Right, exactly. It's Neat. it's it's like iTunes Radio, and there's a lot to be said for iTunes Radio. Uh but Spotify I already have paid for and I don't have to worry about I mean, I can once the playlist is generated, you know, like iTunes Radio, you can skip like I think three or four songs. Yeah. With this, it's it's your playlist. It, you can do whatever you want with it. Nice. And uh, does it cast a wide net when it picks yes. the songs to put in? It does. Okay. It does. I I discover new music all the time using Lazify. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Number three for you. Yeah. Number three. Um, I'm going to pick a, a style of beer. Um, and, and this is a, a style of beer from a, a specific place in Germany. I think that's where it w- its origin was, uh, from Bomberg, Germany. And they make um, a smoked beer. So the German word for it is Rauchbier. Although in some, part, in some parts of Germany, you'd call it Rauschbier. I guess it depends on, on where you are. I took German in high school, but that was a while ago. So I'm not certain about which pronunciation you would use if you're actually there. But basically, they use... They, they smoke the barley that they use to make the beer. And so it gives the beer a really, um, it's very aromatic. It actually kind of has a, a smell of kind of like a smoked um, bacon. It kind of has a bacon sort of smell to it, which huh. some people find really off-putting. And I wouldn't say that this is a, the type of beer that you'd want to have as your like, you know, daily drinker or something. But um you know, it's not like a pale ale where you can, you know, have one frequently. It, it's kind of more of a special type of beer. And you, you probably wouldn't want to have too much of it at once. But it's not high in alcohol or anything, but it's a very specific uh, smell and flavor that is just amazing. It, it's just a, a completely different um, experience. And and even people that maybe aren't that into beer or who actively dislike it might enjoy this beer. Um so it's called Rauchbier, and that Rauch means smoke in German. And um, the main brewery that makes it is called Schlenkerla, uh, and I think they're the ones from Bomberg, Germany. Uh, my parents actually went to Bomberg a few years ago, and that's kind of how I found out about it because they were raving about it when they came back. And uh, it's just a, a fantastic type of beer. So that's my third pick. Nice. Uh, this apparently used to be prior to the Industrial Age, like a standard form of beer because malt, what, malt, barley was malted over open flames. And as like kiln drying became more common, that whole smoking of, of the barley kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's actually really interesting. Now it's a rarity. Yeah, and there are some breweries that, that make it still. Um, I think on the Wikipedia page, it lists a few of them. Uh, I think maybe there's like one brewery in Minnesota that, that makes it, but, uh, and it's going to taste a little bit different from the German stuff, but it's, if you can try any smoked beer, it's worth trying. But this specific one from Germany is, is a, a top pick of mine. How do you get a beer from Germany? Do you have to go to Germany? Well, no, you can buy this stuff in the bottle, uh, here. Yeah. They, they distribute it here. Um, this the Schlenkerla oh, nice. brewery, uh, so you can buy it, uh, you know, in a, in a decent you know beer store, you know, in a in a bigger city, you should be able to find it. Great. All right, I will. Uh, 
I'll track that down and link it. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get more uh, St. George's Absinthe Verte because I'm out and I can't find a local distributor for it. Where did you get it originally? Uh, it was given to me in San Francisco. Ah, uh, I guess you have to wait till Macworld next year or something. I guess. We'll see. I'll find it. They're, they list a couple grocery stores in La Crosse, Wisconsin as as carriers, but I haven't found anything there. So, well, I'll keep trying. Yeah. Where, they, where have good, they have good beer in Wisconsin, too. They have pretty good beer in Wisconsin. Have you ever had anything from New Glarus? Yes. I saw you list that on your picks, like your potential picks. Right. New Glarus has not been my favorite. Really? Really. Uh, Spotted Cow. Okay. Have you had Moon Man? I don't think I have. Right, try Moon Man. That's a a pretty easy drinking, like pale ale. That's really good. And then they have a couple of uh, types of beer that they put in the bigger bottles that uh, are kind of like fruit based. They're not sour necessarily, but those are pretty interesting too. I, w- I will remember that because my <laughs> high school band was called Moon Man Auto. Oh, nice. Maybe Which- they named the maybe they named the beer after you. No, probably not. But <laughs> it's funny because if you do a Google for Moonman Auto, uh, it actually comes up with the uh, the textbook, the biology textbook that I was looking at when I came up with the name. Oh wow! The publishers of whom were Moonman and Auto. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Random so, connections. Random. Very <laughs> random. All right. I have to decide between two for my third pick. Um, I'm going to go with. An app called Upward, U P W O R D. It's for iPhone and it's a note taking app that lets you, with just sim- quick swipes, turn notes into uh, bullet lists or tasks that you can check off with another swipe. And it's compatible with like Task Paper and Dropbox. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm told, I've only been playing with it for a little while, but I'm told by reputable sources that. The Dropbox sync is fast and and conflict free, and that the the app itself is is quite polished. I ran into a couple little. Uh, it was I think I ran into one bug on the intro screen that didn't exist once I got into using the app. So it's been really really solid for me so far, and I'm excited about having a viable task paper replacement now that task paper for iOS is dead. Nice off. Maybe have to check that one out myself. Do you use task paper at all? Uh, I do not. No. You might like it. Yeah, but they're not developing it anymore, right? Oh, task paper on Mac is is coming out uh, with a three soon and folding text from the same guy. It's also task paper compatible, and you can use it all through Dropbox. And I use I use my task paper list with you know any text editor. That's the beauty of mm-hmm. task paper is they're just text files. Okay. In a very simple format with like a dash means a task and a colon means a project. And like you can edit it anywhere. And that's what I that's what I love is just the flexibility of the format. Yeah. My my issue kind of with uh task lists and apps and stuff is that I've become addicted to start dates and uh not seeing certain things until it's time for me to work on them. Uh-huh. And I have tricks for that with task paper. Oh really? Uh-huh. Oh, well, yeah, okay. Maybe uh, I didn't think you could do that with task paper, you but can. if you can, I would, I would give it a look for sure. Yeah, it, it takes a little bit of scripting. It's it's a it's a hacker way to do things, but 
Uh, but it is possible. You that can, just means it's more fun, right? Uh, for me, yeah. <laughs> me does. too. Um, can I do a can I do a three point one pick too? Sure. There's this shirt on Etsy. You ever listen to the Misfits? Uh, not very often. No. Are you familiar with them as a band? Yes. Danzig and and the whole B movie. So there's this shirt that at the top it says caffeined, but spelled like. Uh, like fiend, and then it's got a picture of like Danzig from Misfits days, like the cartoon skeleton guy mm-hmm. holding a pot of coffee in one hand and a cup in the other hand that says "World's Greatest Dead," and uh, it's it's hilarious to me. I, or, I ordered it the second I saw it. Nice. So that's my my three B pick. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah. So that's uh that's that's about a wrap right there. You well, can, thanks for uh, having me on. Oh, no, my pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Um, you can be found on Twitter as TechAdvance. That's T-E-C-H-E-D-V-A-N-C-E. Yep. And then uh, same TechAdvance.com is where you blog, and you have a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff about productivity. And uh, I was reading through your OmniFocus posts. Mm-hmm. Entertaining. because i I can relate i can relate to your travels in that regard yeah yeah and then uh and then i'll link your book um on ibook the ibook store because you know ibook isn't a word uh i think so yeah i I tried to use ibook when i was advertising for the book with google and they wouldn't let me yeah yeah apple does not like the term ibook it's a book from the ibook store oh i see what you're saying okay yeah I, i didn't realize that yeah, but anyway, um, and I am Brett Terpstra. I'm TT Scoff everywhere, um, and you should check out also Overtired, my other podcast with Christina Warren on Five by Five, and then uh, stay tuned next week as well because we'll have um, uh, uh, <laughs> Roderick back for uh, part two of that conversation. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I, uh, I felt really bad cutting him short the first time. We'll make up for it. I'll give him two hours this time. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Great talking to you, and we will see everybody in one week. <laughs>